The following is an excerpt from Joseph Sheridan Lefanu's Carmilla, in which a bereaved general tells Laura and her father about his single-minded obsession. And this was once the palatial residence of the Karnsteins. It was a bad family, and here its blood-stained annals were written. It is hard that they should, after death, continue to plague the human race with their atrocious lusts. There remains to me but one object which can interest me during the few years that remain to me on Earth, and that is to wreak on her the vengeance which, I thank God, may still be accomplished by a mortal arm." "'What vengeance can you mean?' asked Laura's father. "'I mean to decapitate the monster,' the general answered with a fierce flush and a stamp that echoed mournfully through the hollow ruin. "'With a hatchet, with a spade, or with anything that can cleave through her murderous throat. Hi everyone, I'm Alastair Murden, and this is Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Ghost stories have arisen from every century and every corner of the world, from the streets of Victorian Whitechapel to the temples of Japan. Whether seated around the campfire or curled up with a pair of headphones, we return to them time and again to feel our skin crawl and our hearts race. Episodes of Ghost Stories are inspired by classic short stories from some of history's greatest authors. The following version is our own unique take. It may feel familiar in some ways and different in others. We hope you enjoy it. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we conclude our special four-part Halloween series, which takes us from the world of Victorian ghosts to the world of Victorian vampires. For the entire month of October, we've been retelling Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu's classic novella, Carmilla. If you haven't listened to parts one, two, and three yet, make sure you go back and start from the beginning. Last week, we followed as our heroine, Laura, investigated a violent, wasting disease killing peasant girls in the countryside around her castle. The sickness began with strange dreams of ghosts, and ended quickly with sunken flesh, fever, and death. When Laura sees a spectre in her own dream and her skin begins to wither, she knows she's next. But her illness is progressing more slowly than in other victims, which leaves her just enough strength and time to uncover a dark secret. Her mother's family was tied to a line of vampires that terrorized the area with a similar disease generations ago. Now, Laura is certain there's another vampire in their midst, and if she's going to survive, she has to find it and destroy it. But first, she has to get through yet another terrifying nightmare. This time, featuring a face she recognizes. 
Carmillas. Coming up, Laura learns what Carmilla meant about the violence of love. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Laura's dreams started with a feeling of cold, rushing water pulling at her. She'd had this dream before, and she let herself drift into it, which is when it shifted into a series of unfamiliar sensations. They gripped her body like the tension that strings a bow then left her trembling, not so much in fear as in shock and pleasure. But she forgot that pleasure when she awoke, to see Carmilla standing at the foot of her bed, her white nightgown drenched in blood. Laura sat up with a shriek. As she did, the blood-soaked Carmilla disappeared. She reappeared by the door, then disappeared again. Just as Madame Peridone and Laura's father began banging on her bedroom door, alerted by Laura's scream. Laura shot out of bed and ran to open the door. She felt dizzy and confused, even weaker than she'd been the day before. But she was propelled by a terrible fear. As she fell into Madame Peridone's arms, she whispered, I'm all right, but, but I saw Carmilla covered in blood. I I think she's hurt. Laura pulled herself from Madame's grip and stumbled down the hall to Carmilla's room. But it was locked from the inside, just like it was every night. She yelled for her friend. There was no answer. Then she slammed her fists against the oak door as hard as she could. But her arms felt weak and useless. She looked at her flesh, where her sleeves had fallen back, and her heart sank. Her arms now had that same sunken, papery look as her hands, the same protruding veins. Her disease was progressing. Laura swallowed. Whatever tonight's dream meant, it must have been caused by the Upir. A horrific thought flashed through her mind. God, what if it meant the Upir had attacked Carmilla too? She felt her knees start to buckle in panic. Laura's father rushed up behind her, propping her up. Laura, calm yourself. What is going on? She cried out for Carmilla again, but there was only silence from the other side of the door. Laura's father stared at her in shocked concern. I'm sure Carmilla is quite all right. You must have had a nightmare. 
Laura looked up at him, eyes wild with panic. Please, father, find a way to open the door. I know something is wrong. Her father frowned down at her, then nodded. He turned to Madame Peridone, who was clutching a shawl around her bony shoulders, her eyes wide with worry. Madame, go get the skeleton key, please. Madame Peridone nodded anxiously and scurried off. Laura's panic, meanwhile, was mounting by the minute. She felt certain the Oupir had gotten Carmilla. He'd gotten her and drained her, just like the peasant girls, leaving nothing but a bloody mess and the withered husk of Laura's beautiful friend. But just as Laura felt she might collapse with terrified anticipation, Madame Peridone returned with the key, and Carmilla's door swung open to perfect darkness. Laura's heart pounded in her ears like a drum. She ran into the silent darkness towards the drapes and pulled them back. As the first glimmer of dawn illuminated the room, she turned back toward the bed to see nothing. No blood-soaked body. No body at all. The bed was perfectly made, as if no one had slept in it for days. Laura stood frozen. She'd been so sure that something had happened to Carmilla, that she'd be lying helpless in a pool of her own blood, drained of life, perhaps seconds from death. Now, as the adrenaline left Laura, all she felt was confusion. If Carmilla wasn't ravaged by the Upir, then why was she in Laura's dream? Why wasn't she in her room? An appalling thought sent a chill up the back of Laura's neck. Where is she? Laura's father grabbed her shoulder. I don't know, but if she's not here, either you're right and she's in trouble, or she's up to trouble. She hasn't been convorting with some peasant boy, has she, Laura? Laura shook her head mutely. No. Carmilla would never. She'd never shown any interest in boys. Father raised a brow, unconvinced, then turned back to Madame Peridone. Madame, go wake the servants and send out a search party. Laura and I will start looking now. Laura will know the parts of the woods Carmilla is likely to go to, if she's indeed left of her own will. Let's go. Laura followed her father dutifully, crossing the road into the forest. He was talking and talking about what Carmilla's mother would say if something happened to her daughter, about his responsibility to Carmilla as a young girl under his charge, about the sorts of dangers that befell young ladies who wandered into the forest in the wee hours. But to Laura, his words felt far away. She was thinking instead of Carmilla's speeches the ones Laura had become so familiar with in the weeks since her arrival. Almost always, they were intense declarations of Carmilla's love for Laura. But she never just talked about love. She talked about violent love. Laura thought then of her dreams, the dreams she'd had ever since that first night when her illness began. The dreams she knew now were Oupir dreams. They were terrifying, violent, but 
they were also loving. She thought of the gentle caress of cold water tugging at her body, and of those delicate, feminine little hands that caressed her in last night's dream. Hands that were like Carmilla's hands. Hands that made her go limp. As passive and acquiescent as this strange, draining sickness afflicting her. Laura swallowed the lump forming in her throat. No, she told herself. Don't think like that. That can't be right. To her relief, the thought was interrupted. It was horse hooves thundering down the road behind them. Laura's father immediately started running toward the sound. Oh, thank God. I'm sure it's the servants, and she's turned up back at the castle safe. Laura followed her father, suddenly feeling hopeful. Perhaps he was right. Perhaps Carmilla had just gone out for an innocent stroll, and Laura was simply making connections that weren't there. But when they reached the road, they didn't see one of their servants. They saw General Spielsdorf, the old family friend who had cancelled his visit to their castle in a very strange letter. The very day Carmilla arrived. The letter had explained that his ward, a teenage girl like Laura, had died. Or that was what it seemed to explain. But his words had been scrambled with confusion, as if the general was crazed with grief. He was the last person Laura or her father expected to see in the woods. Laura's father waved at the general, who pulled his horse up short, dismounted a bit clumsily, and pulled off his hat. Laura and her father looked at him silently, too stunned to say anything. They were shocked at his unexpected arrival, yes, but even more so at his appearance. He used to be an impressive horseman, strong and confident, but now he seemed distracted, haunted. His eyes darted about, dark pits circling the sockets. Beneath his hat, his hair was stringy and unkempt. But then, the general seemed to gather himself and smiled and gave a gallant little bow. It's good to see a father and his little girl together on a morning walk. I miss those days with Bertha. At that, Laura's father pulled himself out of his stupor and grasped the general on the shoulder. My deepest condolences, old friend. What a terrible loss. I tried writing you, but got no reply. I was worried. Your last letter left us unsure of how you were or what exactly had happened to your Bertha. The general frowned, the lines in his face etching deep furrows in his skin. I was afraid to tell you then. Afraid you wouldn't believe me. You're a logical man, like I was once. But what I've seen has changed me. Still, you ought to know. It's why I'm here, after all. I've heard whispers that the same thing which took my birthdays in these parts now, attacking young peasant girls. Not for long, though, God willing. I'm here to hunt the vile beast. Hunt it and destroy it. Laura's mouth dropped open in shock. You're hunting the Upir? 
Is that what killed Bertha? Her father looked at her, confused. You believe the old wives' tales then, Laura? But the general and Laura both ignored him, locking eyes. The general nodded at her solemnly. The old peer came into my home as a guest. She seduced my Bertha with her sweetness and her beauty. And then she drained her, slowly, secretly, until she died. Here, the general lost his composure and choked back a sob. Laura, meanwhile, felt her stomach drop. The thought she had fought so hard to avoid clicked into place, finally, undeniable. She, the Oopir, was a she. Carmilla. Coming up, Laura goes from hunted to hunter. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows, others operate in plain sight, all are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Laura stared at the general, her stomach dropping in horror. The thoughts that had been swirling in her mind since Carmilla's disappearance suddenly took shape. And all at once, she knew. Carmilla was the Oopir. The Oopir that had drained the life from all those village girls. The Oopir that was killing her. Bile rose in Laura's throat. How could she? But... This also meant Laura had been right to search for the Oopir, and now she knew who it was, which meant she could still save herself from this strange sickness. Laura straightened up and looked from the distraught general to her father. She'd protected him from the knowledge of her disease as long as she could. It was time to tell them what she knew. She turned back to the old man. You're right, general. The Oopir is here now. I'm certain of it. With that, 
Laura held out her withered hand with its papery skin and protruding blue veins. Then she pulled up her sleeve to show how the disease traveled, how it was claiming her body by the day. Laura's father looked at her in shock, then grabbed the withered arm she pulled out from her sleeve. He choked back a howl of grief. Good God, Laura, not you too. Why didn't you tell me you'd been struck by the disease? Why didn't you come to me? Laura bowed her head. I was going to. At first, I wasn't sure what it was. It's taking me so much slower than the village girls, and I didn't want to cause you unnecessary pain, but it is taking me. She is taking me, and now we know who she is. Her father looked at her, wide-eyed with grief and confusion. Who? For a moment, Laura felt almost angry that he hadn't figured it out, that she'd have to put it into words for him. A lump formed in her throat, but she forced herself to speak. Carmilla, father. It's been Carmilla all along. Her father stared at her, looking faint with shock. But before he could respond, the general interjected. Carmilla? Is that what she called herself? Another version of the name she took with us, Milaka. It must indeed be her. He looked wildly from Laura to her father. Tell me, did her mother leave her in your care under mysterious circumstances? Father nodded slowly. Eagerly, the general continued. Yes, yes, of course. To us, it happened at a masked ball. The mother suddenly had to leave for a long journey in the middle of the night. No journey for a young girl, she said. So I agreed to let the monster stay with Bertha and me. There's nothing in my life I regret more. Laura looked at her father. He stared back at her, wide-eyed, and whispered, So similar to what happened to us. Surprised herself, Laura nodded. It was almost exactly what had happened to them, as if it was some well-rehearsed act. The general continued, We have a monster on our hands, but thank God above, I finally found her. Laura glanced at her father, but he was still too stunned to speak, so she answered instead. I'm afraid you haven't found her, General. At least, not yet. We discovered her missing from her room in the wee hours. In fact, we were searching for her when we found you. The General's eyes brightened. Ah, of course. She hunts at night, savagely killing peasant girls. And of course, more slowly draining her favorite prey. You, Laura, a noble girl whose blood she savors. It's just how it was with my Bertha. But for you, there's still time. Laura's father turned back to the general aghast. Are you certain that it's the same girl? That she truly is what you say she is? The general looked at him sadly. It's her, undoubtedly. I've done my research, old friend. I know it's absurd, but it's true. Your guest 
is a vampire, or an upir, as the rustics call them. In my search for her, I've sought old legends and stories. There's a tale of noblemen in a red cloak. He killed off the old Karnstein Count, a fearsome vampire. But in more obscure texts, I found references to another Karnstein Upier. The one we're searching for, I believe. She escaped the hunt back then, but this Karnstein operated more quietly and cleverly. She learned to move around, never staying long enough in one area to get caught. Until, I hope, now. Laura gritted her teeth and spoke. A Karnstein? Carmilla said she was a Karnstein, and she looked so like that portrait of Countess Mercala, dead some 100 years, yet a perfect likeness. A pleased look crossed the general's face. Another anagram of the same name. Milaka, Camilla, Mercala. That has to be her own portrait. From before she died. Before she was a vampire. Back when she went by her real name. That feeling of bile rose in Laura's throat again. She hadn't even known Carmilla's real name. She thought she'd loved her, understood her, but it was all a lie. She was my only friend, and she wants to kill me. Suddenly, she felt the general's hand on her back. Not if we kill her first. And at this time of day, I know exactly where she'll be, resting after her hunt until the afternoon. Her tomb... Unfortunately, I'm not sure where to find it. Laura turned toward the general and gripped his arm, her fingers trembling with the effort. I think I know someone who can help. The trio hurried toward the local blacksmith's cottage, where he lived with his wife Mary, an old friend of Laura and her father, and keeper of all the local law. There, in a rush, they told her their tale about Carmilla. Mary listened in silence, then immediately pulled up Laura's sleeve and looked at her arm. She took her finger to Laura's pulse and shook her head. You figured out her identity just in time. If she has another night to drain you with her spectral visits, you won't be strong enough to recover. There's no time for conversation. We have to kill Carmilla. Now. The general tapped his finger on Mary's shoulder. Yes, well, that's just the problem. We don't know where Milaka's tomb is. Mary looked at him with a raised brow. Well, Laura was smart to bring you to me, because I do. With that, Mary began to move about, collecting a wooden stake from the corner of the cottage and shoving her husband's axe into the general's hands. Come, I'll take you to the Karnstein crypt. We'll slice off the vermin's murderous head. The unlikely troop of vampire slayers rushed through the forest and straight towards the Karnstein castle ruins. Laura shuddered as it came into view, a giant, moss-covered monument of crumbling stone. 
When she and her father used to go on long walks to the east, she'd always been fond of the site. It had felt like her only connection to her mother's side of the family. It was her only connection. Until Carmilla. Perhaps, Laura wondered, that's why Carmilla chose her. Because they were connected. Distantly, yes. But by blood. Laura shook off the thought as they approached the looming ruin. There was no connection between her and Carmilla. Carmilla had betrayed her. A little voice then whispered in the back of Laura's head. But don't you love her? Doesn't she love you? How could it possibly all be a lie? Laura shivered and gritted her teeth, pushing the voice away. She tried to focus on their mission, on saving her own life. At first, Mary led them through the castle with purpose, through long halls and silent, damp rooms. Old pieces of rotten furniture lay molding here and there, but no one stopped to take in the desolation. They kept marching until Mary brought them to a chapel. They then passed through a small door in the back of the sanctuary and found themselves in a dark, silent cavern. The crypt. Mary turned to the rest. There are a few rooms with the family's tombs. I'm not certain where Mercala's is exactly, but it's here somewhere. Everyone, look for her name. It'll be carved into the stone. They all nodded dutifully and spread out about the cavern. As Laura walked, her limbs felt heavy, as if moving against a current. She was so tired, but she forced herself to search the chamber, looking for that name. Not Carmilla. Makala. As she wandered toward the back of the first room, she didn't find a tomb, but a door. And there was a voice calling from it. A sweet voice. That voice that made her feel like she was melting. Laura, my love. Laura walked toward it, her legs seeming to move of their own accord. A strange thought entered her mind, unbidden, but so clear and sure. True love is nothing to fear. She reached the doorway, and there, on the other side... Laura saw her, ghostly, insubstantial, but undeniably Carmilla. Tears were running down her pale, beautiful face. She reached out her arms. Laura felt her own arms raise in response. And then Carmilla spoke straight into Laura's mind. You are beloved. All I want for you is love, but love is violent. I've told you that, my dearest, my blood, my Laura. Come with me willingly, lay with me in death, be mine forever. For tell me, have you ever loved anything more than me? Have you ever felt more pleasure than with me? Laura felt then 
as if something inside her was breaking open. Carmilla was right. She wanted her more than anything. She wanted all the ways Carmilla made her feel, the agony that was ecstasy. She walked forward. A cool, welcoming breeze seemed to swirl around her. And then she felt arms wrap around her waist and pull her backwards, throwing her to the floor. Laura! That's a ledge! Good God, child! It was her father. Suddenly, Laura felt confused. She looked around. Carmilla was gone. And her father was right. All that was left in front of her was a sheer black drop where the floor had caved in long ago. Laura began to gasp, horror rising in her chest, horror and fury. There was no denying it now. Carmilla did want her dead, because her love was only in death. But however good it felt, it was not a love she wanted. And Laura would do the only thing she could to escape it. She pointed into the dark abyss. Carmilla's crypt is down there. Mary, the general, and her father all looked at her, curious and confused. But then Mary narrowed her eyes at Laura and nodded. There, on the side, we can climb down. They all clambered down carefully, and when they reached the rubble below, there it was. Cracked and damaged, but intact. A stone coffin emblazoned with the words they'd been searching for. Mercala, Countess Karnstein. Mary turned to the men. Remove the lid. They did, groaning with effort as they heaved the slab of stone. Then all four paused at what they saw inside. It was no corpse. It was Carmilla, their charming guest. If anything, she looked even more beautiful than usual, stronger. Her limbs were plump and elastic, her lips pink, her long, flowing locks of hair seemed almost to glow with health. But all around this pretty picture was a pool of dark, still liquid blood. As Laura stared at Carmilla's living corpse, she felt weaker than ever, as if it was pulling her life force toward it like a magnet. But even more so... She felt her anger and conviction growing. Carmilla may have loved her, wanted her for eternity, but she'd also lied to her, used her, and thought that her love was worth Laura's death. Carmilla was a monster. In one swift motion, Laura grabbed the stake from Mary's hand and drove it straight into Carmilla's heart. As the wood penetrated the tender, living flesh, blood rose out around it, and Carmilla's eyes shot open. She let out an inhuman shriek, and then she stared straight at Laura, her face twisting with pain. As her lips turned from pink to white to grey, they parted one last time to whisper, Laura! The two men looked at Laura, aghast, 
As she stood, staring at Carmilla's depleted corpse, Laura suddenly felt lost and alone. She gasped, unable to breathe. Mary clasped her shoulder and whispered, Well done, child. She instructed the men once again, Take the body out of the castle, behead it, and burn the lot. Then, for you, for the villagers, it will all be over. At that, both men smiled, apparently appeased. They got to work, the general letting loose a cackle of satisfaction as he swung the axe over his shoulder. My Bertha shall be avenged. Father gave Laura a quick kiss on the cheek as he followed him out. Mary pulled Laura close to her chest, and finally, Laura's breathing began to slow. Tears began to flow down her cheeks. Mary whispered into her ear, For them, it's over. But for you, Carmilla will always be there. A haunting and a love. You'll have to live with that pain. But at least you'll survive. Mary was right. Laura never forgot Carmilla. She regained her strength and grew older. She went to balls and married. She had little noble children. But every once in a while, she heard footsteps outside the drawing room. Those soft, lilting, girlish footsteps. And she felt a shiver run through her body. A shiver of deep, agonizing fear and pleasure and heartbreak. Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla set the standard for almost all vampire stories to come, starting with, but not limited to, Dracula. There's that signature vampire talent of the glamour in which the vamp seduces its victim with a beguiling haze of pleasure. The shape-shifting and power to appear in dreams. The blood-drinking, the neck-biting, the coffins. You name it, Carmilla did it first. That alone is enough to make this story a classic in the annals of horror fiction. But what's most interesting to modern audiences, scholarly and popular alike, is the journey Carmilla shares with Laura. Theirs is a vampire tale undoubtedly terrifying and bloody, but it's also a coming-of-age story. It's about growing up and about sex, about the kinds of secret worlds we build as teenagers while we're trying to figure out who we are. And as a Victorian story about sexuality, it's remarkably non-judgmental or critical. What makes Carmilla evil isn't her love for Laura. It's her violence. The love that goes along with it, in fact, is perhaps her one redeeming quality. Queer narratives are yet another aspect of the novella that's been adopted in vampire tales aplenty. Anne Rice, for example, has cited Carmilla as an inspiration for her best-selling series, The Vampire Chronicles, where love also serves as a complicated counterpoint to violence. 
But love story aside, Lefanu's Carmilla is also about stepping into identity. Laura has to face the fact that her experience with Carmilla is something that her father can't understand. It's something that's truly her own. And for all the darkness, fear, and danger it brings, she has no choice but to live with it. In that sense, she's an appealing modern heroine. Just like Carmilla, with her beauty and bloodlust, is a tantalizing contemporary villain. It's likely another reason their story has been adapted or referenced again and again. There are homages to Carmilla in literature and film, in addition to a fair number of adaptations. I hope you enjoyed our adaptation and it added some spookiness to your Halloween month. If you want more extra creepy content to keep the fun going, check out our Season of the Witch special, which is running across several other Parkar shows, including my other show, Superstitions, where a cult-like witch coven puts a new age spin on witchcraft. Otherwise, I'll be here next week with another ghost story. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places Ghost Stories. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was written by Nora Battelle with writing assistance by Alex Garland and Greg Castro, fact-checking by Audrian Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, each week we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.